Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Tim Malone. Uh, we're at the Nicholson Library at Linfield College. It's February 26th, 2020. Thanks so much for joining us today, Tim. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, first question for you, uh, why wine? You know, I... That's a good question. I think um, it ended up being a culmination of several aspects. Uh, I think I've always been mechanically inclined, which I think is something you really need to do when you're in production. Um, I've always been into craftsmanship. Uh, I've also been very artistic, uh, formerly with a career um, in music, uh, having attended Berkeley College of Music and going to school for uh, film scoring. I've kind of always been artistic. I think I'm a good uh, combination of my parents in that way. My mom's always been very artistic. My dad's an accountant, so mathematical and mechanical based, you know? So, uh, I, you know, having uh, taken an interest to food and beverages at a relatively young age, you know, kind of late teens, um, it was kind of a natural progression after I got burnt out on music, you know? So I uh, kind of got in the service industry, ended up in the beer industry, and then, uh, worked my way into wine production. So before we talk about that, let's talk about the original intent, the music, uh, yeah. School for Music Film Scoring. Tell me about how that came about. Uh, music was always a big part of my life. I started playing really young. Uh, I had a couple relatives who were musicians, so I, I picked up uh, self-taught originally, you know, guitar. In front of my grandparents' attic, <laughs> you know, I did as best as I could with that until my parents finally realized I wasn't going to give it up. So uh, <laughs> they said they finally decided to start helping me out, and um, yeah, it was just uh, it was something I was good at. My older brother was really into sports. I didn't take to it. I really wasn't competitive. I ended up being much more creative, and uh, so I pursued that. And, and, and you know, it was great. My parents, my parents were really supportive on that. So um, I just kept pursuing it and pursuing it, and. I eventually got a scholarship to Berkeley School of Music for it, and uh, you know, but just like anything, I think um, you take a passion, you try to turn it into a career, you get burnt out on it to some degree, you know, you, um, especially when things don't materialize as you expect them to, you, you, you start uh, having to do, take a lot of jobs that you have no interest in, <laughs> you know, so then you end up getting burnt out, you know, so, uh, the one great thing, besides that music has greatly enriched my life and I've gotten a lot of great relationships out of it, is that um, it taught me a lot about how I should uh, pursue my career in the wine industry as mm -hmm. well. You know, not to get that burnout factor and really stick to what I want to do. Mm -hmm. To um, not compromise either. So you went from there, you mentioned getting into kind of service and beers. So tell, us, tell us kind of about that transition and, and getting into the, in the beer industry. Yeah, well like any uh, professional musician, I needed to make some money, you know? <laughs> so I, got a, I had a friend hook me up with a, a bartending gig. Um, it was in Norwalk, Connecticut. Uh, I was living, I born and raised in the suburbs of New York City, so uh, Connecticut wasn't that far away. And it was attached to a brewery. So. Uh, very quickly, I got to know the brewers, and they needed help. Uh, they bottled every Wednesday, so they're like, "Hey, you know, we could use some extra help. Why don't you come in?" I had nothing going on a Wednesday day day shift, so I was like, "Yeah, I'll come in." Started uh, 
started helping out in the brewery, you know, and it kind of snowballed from there. Uh, one of the managers there was big into wine. I had already been in, uh, somewhat into wine at that point, but no formal education. So uh, my buddy Lou Montanari kind of started helping me uh, taste um, a bunch of great French wines and start collecting and uh, snowballed from there. <laughs> So you kind of, uh, as you kind of developed a palate and kind of discovered your kind of interest and in, in passion for wine, tell me mm -hmm. about how you pursued it at that point. At that point, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but uh, I, back then I don't think I would have told you I, I was going to end up here. You know, I, uh, my buddy Lou, who I just I just mentioned, started making wine at home. So you know, we're in his backyard, getting drunk, <laughs> you know, stomping on grapes. Making some awful stuff, I'm sure. <laughs> but you know, uh, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it, you know. And um, the head brewer at the time, uh, Randy Checka, buddy of mine as well, who later became the uh, viticulturist at Flowers down in Sonoma, um, would come over as well. So we all kind of tried this experiment together, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, so from there, I started taking classes, started getting a little bit more formal with it, switched over to a, a great little company called Fountainhead Wines, where we we're importing wines and wholesaling wines, and we had a couple retail outlets. and. I, uh, I got to work with a, a great guy, Mark Ancona, who really formalized my education. Took me to France several times, took me out to Oregon. Um, you know, and I really got a chance to create a, a really good palate. You know, lots of blind tastings. I was in the suburbs in New York City, so we had access to just unbelievable tastings all the time. Um, and with Mark, I was able to travel out to Oregon, which was. Uh, really the, the start of this whole ordeal, you know? I, I kind of had a sense that I wanted to get in production at that point, you know? Um, having been in the beer industry to some degree and then really wanting to move into wine, I, I didn't know where I wanted to go yet, but um, I, I did love Pinot Noir at that point. And working with them, they had imported a great number of fantastic Pinot Noirs like uh, Cameron, uh, Jay Christopher, Thomas, Patricia Green Sellers. So I get to come out to Oregon, hang out with all these guys. I was selling their wines back in New York, and um, I just, I really knew I, I loved Oregon. So I set up a, a harvest with Jay Christopher, Jay Summers at Jay Christopher Wines in 2006, and took a three month road trip with my dog across the country, and uh, you know, started to start it in on it. <laughs> and uh, haven't, have never looked back, you know, been, been very happy. I'm curious about uh, from brewing. What was it about winemaking that appealed to you? Why didn't you stay with beer? What, why the jump into wine? Well, I never got to uh, brewer status. You know, I was more of a seller at you know at that point. Um, the one thing I would say that um, I got tired of on beer was the consistency. You know, great thing about wine is it changes every year. You know, a harvest throws something different at you. Mm -hmm. uh, Beer, at least at that time in the late 90s, early 2000s, was really about consistency. I would say now it's much more forgiving and people are looking more for fresher beers with um, some um, harvest variation, mm -hmm. perhaps. But back then, no, it was all about consistency. You know, you made your six products and you made them exactly the same every single time. You know, and you get kind of burnt out on it, quite frankly. Um, maybe some people don't. Some people do great work or they keep uh, changing their beers annually but, mm -hmm. but back then we were pretty consistent you know and um, at least uh, the brewery I was working at and you know it just got kind of tiring you know uh, wine just piqued my interest more too quite frankly um, I for me I've always been a big foodie um, you know if I wasn't a winemaker at this point I might be a chef <laughs> you know, I worked in plenty of kitchens I did plenty of restaurant work you know 
being a, a seller at wineries too, you know, you don't make a great deal of money, so you're always substituting your income with restaurant work. So <laughs> I've been bartending in uh, probably longer than I've done anything else in my entire life. <laughs> you know, I can finally say, as of 2017, I'm no longer in the uh, service industry, other than selling my own product. You know, <laughs> it's a pretty big accomplishment there. Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned that kind of early on, uh, production was something that appealed to you. Obviously, coming yeah. from the like you mentioned, the kind of the brewing or the selling seller background. Yeah. Uh, what did you think of wine production as you started getting into it? Uh, you got out here, you got to Oregon, mm-hmm. you're working with Jay. What's the what is it like? What's what's your first experience like? First experience was great. I mean, I went in there. Uh, 2006 harvest. It was me, Jay, uh, Mark Lagasse, who's now the winemaker for Holler and Vineyard Wines. Mm-hmm. And we made, you know, geez, uh, what did we make back then? We probably did eight or 10,000 cases, maybe less, but it was a fair amount of wine for three people to make. And, you know, uh, the great thing about working for Jay is that you got to do everything, you know. Um, you, you dabbled in every part of production. Uh, so th- that was great about being at a, a small to medium-sized winery is that you really got to experience everything. Um, you know, and... He really wasn't, once you kind of got the hang of something, he wasn't afraid to just let you run with it. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I stuck, even though I had, um, after that initial harvest, I uh, had gone and worked a few other places and kind of still continued to work with Jay part-time for a couple more years before I eventually returned full-time as the assistant winemaker. But yeah, <laughs> after that harvest, one of the great experiences I had too was working a growing season at Cameron Winery. Mm-hmm. Um, working a growing season. That was primarily vineyard work, or as John would say, I'm, I'm one of the best uh, weed whackers he's ever had, you know? So, you know, it's just uh, a lot of manual labor, you know, flipping compost pile with a shovel, you know, not using a backhoe. You know? mm-hmm. Great experiences like that that give you, um, give you a lot of, uh, yeah, you, you gotta have a lot of stamina to get, to get through those type of experiences to, to really wanna continue in this line of work, I feel like, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, but that was another great experience. And other other fun things too was um, working down at Flowers, you know, for some cellar work after that initial harvest as well. I quickly learned that Oregon was really the place for me, though. You know, uh, I liked the wines; they were just more to my taste. Um, you know, I was in my late twenties. I was single at the time too, and having access to Portland, you know, for was uh, much more appealing than staying in middle of nowhere Sonoma. <laughs> you know, so you know that. Oregon was just much more to my liking. What were your, uh, when you came out to work with Jay, was that the first time you'd been in Oregon? No, I had oh, come out previously with my employer, yeah. That's right. um, what were your impressions uh, early on of the Oregon wine industry as you became familiar with it? You know, the one thing I, I loved is how um, a lot of people just really, they seem to share a lot of information, much mm-hmm. more so. I, I didn't work in California for a very long time, but. Um, I did get a small sense of a little bit more competition down in California, perhaps, or a little bit more secretive, perhaps, about things, where up in Oregon, I really felt like everybody really got together to share information, talk about what they were doing, and there was, there was no, um, you know, every, you had access to everybody yeah, up here, you know? I could go talk to John Paul at camera, I could go talk to Patty over at Patty Green's, you know? Those people were always accessible and always just so plentiful with with information and so forthcoming. And there were never, you know, I never even had to call and make appointments. I mean, I would just drive up, you know. And if they were there, they were they would they're super happy to give me their time, you know. Mm-hmm. Is uh, is one thing that not only I think makes me a better winemaker now, but it's it was also I think inspiring at the time mm-hmm. to have these people really uh, give you their time. 
So you mentioned uh, kind of the, the, some of the stops you made bouncing around after in your initial harvest. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what was the point you felt like you you were gonna you were gonna make wine in Oregon? Like, what, at what point did you feel like that was that was your your eventual goal? Um, like I mentioned before, hindsight's probably twenty twenty. I think I kind of knew all along when I moved out here, quite frankly. But to to take it seriously, probably by twenty ten when I really started thinking about, okay, how could I do this, you know? And then in 2011, I approached Jay, I was his assistant winemaker at the time for uh, Jay Christopher Wines, and I asked him, I'm like, hey, you know, um, I'd been with him for a few years, and uh, I was like, you know, can I, can I make a, a couple hundred cases, you know? And uh, he's like, well, come up with a business plan, and we'll sit down, <laughs> which was, it was a great idea. I hadn't thought about that at the time. He's like, you know, come up with a plan and tell me what you want to do. And uh, so we sat down had uh, lunch or dinner, I don't quite remember at the time, you know, and kind of and kind of talked about it. And, you know, I think it's a natural progression to, uh, for assistant winemakers after a certain amount of time, you know, if um, it works out to Jay's benefit to keep me around for a few more years and it works out to my benefit to get a free place to start. <laughs> you know, like, uh, like I mentioned, you know, the, uh, the uh, seller life isn't the most financially rewarding. <laughs> you have to be very passionate about it. <laughs> Tell me about that initial business plan. Then, uh, did you uh, did it? Is that what ended up happening? Did it come to fruition? Um, no, not at all. And, you know, and Jay mentioned that too. He's like, the first thing you're going to do with that business plan is you're going to deviate from it. <laughs> you know, you're just going to wander off. You know, initially for the first year or two, it was. You know, it was 150 cases a year for two years in a row, and uh, and then everything just went sideways. <laughs> you start figuring things out. You know, there's some things. Being a seller worker, you just don't learn. You know, I had some sales experience before that, but you know, being a small business owner and finances and how everything else that you just you don't really get experience on until you do it. You know, mm -hmm. I'm still learning. <laughs> yeah, still trying to figure it out. I figured I'll be, uh, you know, maybe in 20 years I'll have this thing dialed in. You know. <laughs> so I'm curious. You mentioned that that process, that figuring it out process. Mm -hmm. What were the what were the biggest hurdles for you? What were the biggest challenges toward having a successful business? You know, um, one is income. You know, my son was born in 2014, so I was like, okay, I have to be a little bit more serious now. It's like I have to I have to bring home a paycheck, you know. Mm -hmm. My wife still works full time. <laughs> she's definitely my better half, you know. She's in uh, cancer research, so she uh, She's a little bit more grounded than me, you know. My my income can kind of waver and <laughs> a little bit, but um, you know, I, I guess you have to figure out how you can make the business work within your life. For one, it can't be all consuming, at least not for me, because now I'm a father of two. Mm -hmm. So uh, I have to figure out how to balance work, work and life. Um, that was a big one. I'm still trying to figure that out. Mm -hmm. it, it's 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 the hardest thing I would say about what I do, mm -hmm. is making sure that. Uh, I can leave work at work, you know, and not have it at home all the time, which <laughs> I'm very much guilty of, you know. Uh, it's an effort to, to walk away sometimes from your third child, you know, <laughs> <laughs> to, to really just kind of let it go and, uh, you know, not always be completely consumed. Mm -hmm. that, that's the hardest thing. I mean, the other thing, though, like I mentioned, you know, is um, finances, you know. Uh, I have chosen not to take on financial partners, you know, even though I've had um, interest. Mm -hmm. I just haven't wanted to. I've been able to get this far without it. Not to say I would never um, take money from somebody in the future. It's not impossible. I just, you know, I just want to do my own thing. So <laughs> that's the other part, you know, is um, 
you know, having the money to, to finance inventory and wine is probably the, the hardest thing I would say for any business, quite frankly, is financing inventory. And, and wine is uh, one of the hardest things to do when you're, when you're doing wine uh, in the style in which I'm doing it, mm -hmm. uh, like Cameron or Jay Christopher, you know, 18 to 20 months, Pinot Noir, unfined, unfiltered, you know, you're just hanging on to, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of wine, you know, just sitting there and you can't sell it. You're just like, wow, what am I going to do with all this? <laughs> you know, but, uh, but so far it's still working out, you know. So take me back to the beginning of, so you, you've, you've got your model, you've got your idea to start Timothy Malone Wines. Mm -hmm. Take me back to the beginning and, and all the things you had to decide. Obviously you had to come up with a name. Uh, you, had to find, yep. you had to find grapes you wanted to, make, uh, to grow. You had to figure out your style. Yep. Take, me, take me through some of those decisions of, of sort of designing your business. Yeah, well the name, you know, I tried to come up with something witty that I wanted to look at for like the next 30 years before I sold it or shut it down. And quite frankly, I, I couldn't decide on anything I liked. You know, there was a whole bunch of names. So I was like, well, you know, um, at first we came up with Malone wines, but Malone was a little too Irish. I thought it sounded more like a distillery than maybe a winery. So, you know, it's like, well, let's just throw Timothy in the front. And, you know, I looked at it for a while. Um, I was happy with it. You know, I had talked to some friends, a good friend of mine is Tyson Crowley. Mm -hmm. uh, he was the assistant winemaker at Cameron at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, we had talked about it. This is back even in 07, you know, and, uh, you know, having your name on something, you know, uh, perhaps you perhaps you take it a little bit more seriously because you don't want to degrade your name, you know? Uh, you're gonna be perhaps a, a little bit more inclined to put in that little bit of extra effort, you know, mm -hmm. since uh, everybody knows exactly who you are. <laughs> you know, as, and then as far as the grapes, I was unsure about the grapes at the time when Jay said I could make wine. Um, I got really lucky though. So we had, um, Jay had taken on a business partner, he had, uh, They'd gotten a Pachinata Vineyards, and uh, the the vineyard was starting to come online there. So he didn't need all the fruit contracts that he had. So he had asked me, he's like, how would you like two blocks of La Colina Vineyard um, in Dundee? Which I was extremely uh, fortunate to get that from him because the fruit was essentially all contracted up. There's no way I could have gotten that. So, um, you yeah, know, it was really nice of him to extend that contract to me so that I could start making my wine from that that fruit. That was uh, it was a very good place for me to start. And the 2012 vintage too, one of, one of the, a lot of people consider one of the best vintages we've had in the last decade. Uh, was a great year to start too. So that wine sold very easily for me, you know, 150 cases. I'm like, all right, we're off to a good start here. You know? <laughs> this is going to be easy, no problem. Mm -hmm. What about your style? Uh, how did you kind of settle on, you talk about you have a long hang. Uh, yeah, so, that? you know, I think that's still um, evolving quite a bit. Um, but, you know, definitely the J. Christopher Cameron camp, you know, that lineage, I would say, I'm, I'm certainly coming from, uh, if you want to look at it that way. You know, um, extended barrel aging, no fining, no filtering. Um, I, I'm... One thing I've altered substantially is, uh, which I think is becoming much more popular, is much lower use of uh, sulfur. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, <coughs> I think I, I've been gravitating more towards neutral wood. Where, you know, Cameron and Jay Christopher, they're, they're not using a, a bunch of new wood by any means. Um, but uh, one person I think who's had a large effect on me, uh, or a big effect on me that recently is uh, Jason Lett, mm -hmm. you know, whose wines I've always liked. and. Uh, I'm, I'm coming much more around, to, you know, when you're young, perhaps you like uh, more new wood, it's a little bit sweeter, it's a little bit more forward, you know, then you start discovering the attributes of, uh, of um, less wood as you get older, perhaps, you know. Mm -hmm. so, I think uh, 
I'm still evolving on that front. So I, I would say I've hardly um, decided on <laughs> production. No, it's it's changing all the time, quite frankly. But yeah, I'm sure there's a consistency to my to my wine that doesn't deviate too much from Jay Christopher and Cameron. So tell me about growing the business. Uh, you talked about two years, 150 cases mm -hmm. each. What happened next? Yeah, 14. Um, I made about 250 cases, and then my son was born in 15, actually, right at the end of harvest. <laughs> Jay was nice enough to give me six days off, actually, towards the end of harvest, uh, after my son was born, to help my wife out. So after that, um, in 15, though, I left in July of 2015, um, and I moved up to Medici Vineyards, to my production. So there, I jumped up to about 1,500 cases, I think, you know? It was a pretty big investment. So. Uh, Approached the bank, got some money, borrowed some money against the house, line of credit on the inventory, the whole deal, you know, and uh, I just went in all in, <laughs> all in completely. So uh, 15, 2015, it was about 1,500 cases. 16, it was about the same. And then 17, uh, I grew, I contracted a couple more vineyards, but also what happened is we just had a huge vintage, you know, mm -hmm. so I ended up going up to about 2,500 cases in 17. And since then, I've backed off to about 2,000. That's kind of where I'm holding for now, 2,200. Realistically, I see myself getting probably 3,000, 3,500. But right now, I'm just trying to stabilize. <laughs> yeah, get the, you know, I'd been kind of moving so fast, I had never gotten a real opportunity to get a few years of numbers under my belt to kind of assess assess how the business was doing, if I was my price points were right. You know. Mm -hmm. So uh, now I'm just trying to kind of enjoy what I got. <laughs> Quite frankly, at this point too, I can do most of the work myself um, with a little bit of bottling help, you know. And uh, if I get up to 3,000, 3,500 cases, I'll need a part-time employee mm -hmm. at that point. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I love production, you know. Um, I don't forever, I don't ever see myself um, walking away from that, you know. So people are like, oh, you know, get a couple employees, you can stop doing all this work. I'm like, I like the work, <laughs> you know. Quite frankly, I like it a lot. So. Uh, you know, I, I would like to kind of find a sweet spot where I can still make the wine, you know? You talk about adding other vineyards. I'm curious, uh, what were you looking for in vineyard size? What, what kind of, what, what's, what's the grape style you're looking for? What's the, what, what do you want your wines to be? Uh, yeah, so I guess uh, in terms of vineyard choice, it was more based off farming practices. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you know, I love organics, I love biodynamics. The one thing that really sticks out for me is, um, more important than either of those is sustainability. Mm -hmm. uh, just because you're organic doesn't mean you're sustainable. You know, you can still uh, have a tremendous, uh, waste tremendous amounts of water even if you're organic. So I try to talk, to talk to people specifically about that. You know, what's your water usage? What do you? That's one reason I like Live Certified as well is because they address some of these issues mm -hmm. on sustainability and and really trying to um, reduce your impact. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so. That was a big part of working with farmers, and quite frankly, farmers who are, have feet on the ground as well. Mm -hmm. You know, just not um, vineyard owners who are just hiring a management crew. I mean, I feel just like as uh, I'm going to put um, more effort into my wines than maybe a hired winemaker would. Uh, I feel the same thing with a, a vineyard owner. You know, they're, when they're really there to to see what's going on, or in the case of like Leah's vineyard with Todd Hansen. I mean, he is on the ground all the time doing a tremendous amount of work himself you know um, it means a lot to me you know when we can talk and he knows exactly what's going on in his vineyard because he's doing a big chunk of the work himself mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
So that's really it. You know, I'm trying to find uh, farmers who are doing the right thing. You know, um, generally small business people like myself. You know, they're, we, we have a better understanding of what's going on with each other's finances and we can kind of, generally we can uh, be a little bit more realistic about how we talk about finances and payment terms and um, if I'm having a hard month or a little bit more open to, you know, possibly a late payment, you know, or if I come into a, a chunk of money, maybe I can pay them off early if they're having a little bit of trouble, you know, so mm -hmm. it's, I, I love working with uh, smaller businesses with people who I can really communicate with. How about selling your wine? I know that's, you, you mentioned you have, you have a bit of background with, with the kind of wholesaling sales, but mm -hmm. now it's, now it's your product. Mm -hmm. You're selling your own, your own, and your name's right there on the label. Yeah. So tell me about that, that, that process, process and how it's gone for you. So far, um, I love it. I mean, I've, I've sold other things, but selling my own thing is really the best thing I've ever had to do. You know, it's, uh, I'm, I have never put a product out, of, out there that I'm not proud of. And that makes it a lot easier. You know, I've, I've, I've had a few small lots of wines that, quite frankly, have just never gotten bottled. You know, I'll, I'll bulk them out. Um, if I'm not happy with the wine, I'm not going to bottle it. Mm -hmm. So um, fortunately, I have enough winemaking experience where I pretty much don't screw things up. Just occasionally you try something new and it doesn't work out, you know. But um, generally you can, you can bulk that wine out and just forget about it. <laughs> you know, and so, yeah, that's where it kind of gets back to not compromising, you know. Mm -hmm. Trying to really uh, just just do the best you can. I, I also try to tell people. I, I've I've met a fair amount of young people who are just, you know, they work one part time harvest and they're just like, I want to make wine. I want to make wine. And I'm like, just get some experience, you know. Uh, not even necessarily in production, you know. I'm like, go get a retail job, you know, part time on the weekends for for six months or twelve months, you know, build your palate up and um, or sales experience working for a distributor. You know, this is all good experience that they need in production. You know, I think a lot of people are just like, I want to make wine, you know, and, um, you know, things go south sometimes too, you know. I mean, the great thing about working for a really good winemaker like Jay Summers or John Paul at Cameron is, you know, um, you get to see how they address the issues when they do arise in a hard vintage like 2007 or 2011 or 2013 mm -hmm. when you have a lot of problems, you know, that's... Uh, I think one of the greatest attributes, essentially what we're doing is, is craft, you know. so. It's really, um, I think, working with a great craftsman is, is a great way to, to, you know, to learn when those problems arise. You know, making wine is not inherently difficult, except when you have problems. <laughs> you know? That's when you that's when you quickly realize who who has good winemakers and who doesn't. You know, um, you know, 2013. Case in point, there was a lot of bad wine that came out 2013. But man, the the wine, the the people who grew great fruit and the people who made good wine, it was one of the best vintages we had. I'm curious. You, you. Uh, at what point do you, did you feel that kind of confidence to handle I still sideways? Don't. <laughs> you know, it's. Uh, I, you know, I. You're always questioning it. You know, sometimes, you 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 do the best you can. The wines come out great. Wines, you don't. Your palate isn't always consistent, or sometimes the wines aren't always tasting consistently. So then you start doubting yourself. I'm like, oh my god, why did I make that decision? That was the worst thing ever, you know. And uh, but I'm also learning from those examples. Uh, for for example, um, I never taste a new vintage 
before the holidays, you know? Mm -hmm. So like with the 2019 Pinots, I started tasting them in January to check for reduction. I, I don't check before the holidays because all you're gonna do is you're gonna stress yourself out, you know? <laughs> you're sitting there at Christmas dinner and you're, you're sweating, everybody's like, you okay, you sick or something? I'm like, no, I'm freaking out about the wine, <laughs> you know? So, so you, know, you kind of also learned uh, when not to, uh, not to check in on things, mm -hmm. you know, but, um, because you're just going to end up doubting yourself and you're doubting your decisions and not everything's in your control. That's, that's the part of dealing with an agricultural product, you know? Um, but you know, I, I feel pretty confident in most of the challenges I have to deal with now. I know how to deal with them, you know, when they do arise, uh, you know, when we have really rainy vintages, you know, sometimes you have sugar additions you have to deal with, you know, and you just, um, just having done these or with other great winemakers, I, I feel confident also being able to, to call those people, you know, sometimes when you're really doubting something, you have friends you can call and be like, "Hey, what are you doing with? <laughs> you know, what are you seeing? What are you doing? How are you handling it?" You know, um, Mark Lagasse at Hollering Vineyard Wines is, you know, still a great friend. We're on the phone all the time. I was like, "What are you seeing? What are you doing? What's going on?" You know, um, I don't think we get together as much as we'd like to, but uh, but that's one. The other thing I like about the Oregon wine industry we talked about earlier was just that uh, ability to really reach out to, to other people to see what's going on. Tell me about the 2019 vintage. You mentioned difficult vintages. This is, we've heard a lot of interesting stories about this one yep. so far. So tell me how it went for you and, and what you're kind of foreseeing for your wine this year. So far, um, so far so good. There's definitely some reduction, which will, hasn't gotten out of hand. So I haven't really had to do much about it yet. Uh, I'll rack the wines relatively soon, get them off their lees. Um, <coughs> fortunately now I'm making enough wine where uh, if you've got a little bit of a problematic area, usually you can blend it out. Mm -hmm. um, I've dealt with far worse reduction in the past, and uh, and I've come up with some new techniques too that I uh, I picked up from other people that I had hadn't done at uh, say Jay Christopher, for example, that uh, much uh, less intrusive ways of dealing with problems. You know, mm -hmm. so you know you just kind of do the best you can. Um, but with the 19 vintage, I'm liking it so far. You know, uh, I'm always, I'm never too fast to judge on a vintage because I find they evolve so much. You know, I, I feel like uh, usually judgments this early on, I feel like are really left to the critics, quite frankly. You know, they're, they, they've got to get something out there. You know, people want to know. And I'm just, well, you know, so far I like it. Uh, lower alcohols, which I'm always a big fan of. Uh, you know, I feel global warming is um, going to be really problematic for us. Uh, so honestly, the, some of these rainier, cooler years, or you know, maybe it wasn't necessarily a cooler year, but vent, uh, harvest was cool and some of the waters really drew the sugars back. Um, I love them, quite frankly. You know, when you can get alcohols in the high 12% and good acidity, uh, those are the wines that are gonna be around for a long time, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, since you, you don't have your own, your own vines, you're contracting mm -hmm. all your grapes, tell me about that relationship at especially at a harvest like this one where it's difficult. Mm -hmm. How do you go about making sure your grapes are the way you want them to be when you get them? You know, like I said, um, I'm pretty close with the farmers I work with. So, yeah, they really want to pull off the best possible fruit they can too. Mm -hmm. um, so, generally speaking, you know, you always run into one problem somewhere. And you just deal with it the best you can, you know. Um, I had a grower and we had to, just from logistics, we had to pull off the fruit earlier than we would have liked. So, um, you know, we had to do sugar additions pretty much across the board. So, you know, it's, 
that uh, you know that wine I'm hoping will it'll still be good you know and I've got uh, different tiers and different price points to kind of reflect that G generally speaking when I have wines that need need something whether it be sugar or acid or water you know basically those wines get declassified you know and you always need something for that label so you know every year you always have something that doesn't that's not great you know um, I also have different price points that I contract as well you know some of my fruits extremely expensive and some of it's less expensive you know specifically for those different price points you know I can't uh, <coughs> you know you can't take fruit that you pay ten thousand dollars an acre for and you know put it in a fifteen dollar bottle of Pinot Noir it's just you know you, you gotta expect great things from it you know mm -hmm. and if the farmer was un un unable to deliver for a couple of years in a row you know, we'd have to have a we'd have to have a talk <laughs> yeah. but you know the reason I'm working with these guys um, is because I had worked in the industry for several years. I built, I, I already had these relationships, you know? Um, and that's what a lot of this is, is relationships, you know? Whether you're making your wine, um, whether you're selling your wine, I mean, these are relationships that you have with retailers and customers and, and, and growers, you know? Um, I, I would be hard pressed to just blindly contract fruit from somebody who wasn't extremely highly recommended to me or somebody I had a relationship with already, you know, mm -hmm. or, you know, somebody who had a great track record, um, especially at a higher price point, you know, and so you, you just kind of have to, I, for me, it's all about relationships. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like that's almost every aspect of my business has been grown because of relationships. When it comes to selling your wine, uh, are you largely selling direct to consumer? Or are you largely selling a restaurant wholesale? What's the, where, how's your wine making? Yeah, most of my business is uh, wholesale. Mm -hmm. That's the strongest part. I think another Cameron J. Christopher trait, you know, uh, you know, having gotten relationships from working for those people, you know, um, you know, I, approximately I would say twenty-five percent of my business is um, FOB out of state. Uh, five percent is probably direct to consumer, and seventy percent is wholesale. Mm. You know, I, and quite frankly, I, I kind of like it that way. <laughs> you know, you know, there's uh, it allows me to stay small. Which uh, I mean, if if I could shrink my business and still generate enough revenue to live on, I would I would love to. Quite frankly, you know, <laughs> if if I could be a John Thomas and make five hundred cases, nobody would be happier than me. Uh, I just don't see think that's very real, realistic for my particular situation. You know. Um, I came in a different time, you know, and, and John got in at, 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 uh, in the, I think, early 80s, mm -hmm. if I remember correctly, you know. Uh, so, you know, I'm not buying some small piece of land for, for nothing, you know. <laughs> There's only room for one John Thomas, perhaps. Yep. Uh, so I'm curious, uh, what, what do you want someone to take away from a bottle of your wine? What would be the ultimate compliment or, or re response to a bottle of your wine? Um, you know, for me, you know, maybe when I was younger, I, I would dork out a little bit more on wine. You know, I'd be sitting in uh, friends and tasting notes. And now for me, it's much more of a social event, you know. Um, if people actually want to go through the, you know, effort of having my wine at a dinner table, that makes me super happy, you know. Uh, I love it when people just casually drink my wines too, but I feel like when when people are like, what are we going to have with dinner? It's like you're taking that extra step, like what's going to be with this meal, you know? It's just not a, a casual item at, at that point, at least for me being such a foodie. Um, I put a lot of thought into what's going to be on my dinner table. So for me, when people are like, you know, we had made this great dinner and we broke out your wine, we had this great event, you know, uh, that, that, that really makes it for me, you know, mm -hmm. that, um, that people are really happy opening that um, with food, mm -hmm. you know, which is one of the, the key points I make 
when I'm blending, you know, I'm always trying to keep food in the back of my head. I'm like, how's this going to be with food? How's this going to be with food? You know, and you know, I do have one or two less expensive products out there. That's like, okay, this is just going to be a, a crusher. You know, this will just be for general consumption. But uh, pretty much, I'm always trying to think of how it's going to how it's going to pair with food. So dinner table is important for me, you know, uh, and my family as well, quite frankly, you know, we, we, we try to have as many family dinners as we can, you know, <laughs> and I grew up that way as well, you know, um, always at my grandparents' house in Yonkers, New York, you know, it was always big family dinners with all my dad's siblings, you know, and it, it was a good time, you know, it's fond memories. So as you, as you uh, look ahead, uh, you, you mentioned the kind of yeah, your goal of ultimately shrinking your business, but you also kind of had the three thousand, three hundred, thirty-five hundred case. Yep. Uh, how are you going to get there? What do you see as you kind of look ahead for the next decade? What's what else is on the horizon? You know, I think a little bit of uh, diversity in the wine program. You know, I think with the eighteen vintage that I'm getting ready to bottle, I'm looking at about fourteen hundred cases. Um, I think I want to hold that for a while, but I, I've I've really expanded a lot in white wines and rosé. Mm -hmm. But uh, I would like to diversify a little bit more into some other red wines, mm -hmm. you know, which I think is uh, becoming quite a bit more popular these days. Mm -hmm. It's it's um, the grapes that I would like to make red wine out of are extremely difficult to get in the Willamette Valley. You know, Nebbiolo and Syrah. There's not a lot of it planted. Mm -hmm. You can get it from other areas, um, Southern Oregon or Yakima. But I just. Uh, I've always spent a fair amount of time in the vineyards that I buy fruit from, and but when I start getting hours and hours away, I just know I'm not going to be visiting those vineyards as mm -hmm. routinely as I do now. So, you know, I'm, I'm inclined to say I might spend more time in the vineyard than um, other people in my situation. You know, uh, so I've been reluctant to really stretch too far from home. So, we'll kind of see how that goes. You know, but. Uh, you know, with global warming, we'll kind of see what what ends up happening here in the in the Willamette Valley. You know, Tempranillo is becoming very popular. Um, you know, the older Pinot Noir sites, I feel like they still do quite well. You know, some of the younger sites though are really suffering from global warming. You know, um, the sugars are just quite frankly too high. The acids are too low. So uh, it's going to be kind of interesting whether or not we're going to switch over to other grapes or. Or the, uh, you know, we just can move Pinot Noir higher up the mountain, you know, mm -hmm. just get higher elevation sites to uh, to combat those warmer temps, and you know, this is all going to be figured out by other people probably than me, quite frankly, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't really consider myself a pioneer by any stretch of the imagination. You know, I'm not doing anything original. You know, I'm I feel like I'm making small contributions here and there, but um, you know, I think the people who are going to figure out. Uh, what's the next big thing here um, will be other people <laughs> other than me. <laughs> what, are the, what are the biggest changes you've seen in the industry from when you came into Oregon wine to, to now? What is, what, what's the biggest thing? The I'd say natural wine movement is the, is the and, um, you know, some people think I'm a little bit more of a traditionalist, but it certainly had an effect on me. Also, the company I was working for back in Connecticut um, Mark Ancona was, was probably more into the natural wine movement before anybody had even used the term, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the produce, producers I had gotten a chance to visit over in France were now kind of pioneers of the wine movement, the natural wine movement, you know? Mm -hmm. um, it, I, I think it's great. On one hand, I see a lot of great winemakers doing fantastic things and pushing limits. and and. Uh, there's and there's a few points that I might dislike about it. You know, um, I see a lot of people who 
quite frankly, I think just don't get enough experience in the industry who by default fall into the natural wine category. Um, you know, and it's kind of unfortunate because I think as a, as a category of wine, I think it's going to, uh, that is going to screw up a lot of the people who are really kind of pioneering, <laughs> pioneering the front. But, you know, I guess every category of wine has, uh, you know, their, their great points and their bad points. Uh, it'll be kind of interesting how that goes. But yeah, natural wine, I would say is the biggest, um, change I would probably say I've seen since moving here in 2006, you know? And, but overall, I think it's a it's a good trend. You know, they're really making everybody question what they had taken for granted earlier. You know, um, you know, same thing. I think in California, you know, if you look at the '80s and early '90s in California Cabernet, you know, it was made in very different than it was starting you know mid '90s up through 2010, 2015, and now bunch of people are reverting back to the older style. You know, um, and I think in a in a great way. You know, they're 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 making them question, you know, overripe fruit and water additions and acid additions and overuse of sulfur. And I think these are all valid points, you know. Um, not to say that these techniques don't um, come in handy every once in a while, but they were becoming kind of standard practice, you know. Uh, I think we need to save these techniques more for fixing than, than just everyday usage. Mm -hmm. So with, with that in mind, what have you seen stylistically change the most uh, in Oregon um, from, from that kind of natural wine push? What, what has changed the most for how people are making wine? Um, well, it's kind of interesting because there's kind of a dichotomy because at one sense I've seen uh, wines becoming much more um, complacent or just kind of becoming a riper style. And part of it's global warming, but part of it too is... Uh, kind of market trends, you know, kind of following suit uh, on California a little bit. But then on the natural wine front, yeah, you see it'll revert back the other way as well, you know. Um, and it's, it's really interesting because there's just such a dichotomy between the two, you know, uh, where I feel like I kind of fall somewhere in the middle, you know, and maybe that's the most boring place to be, quite frankly, you know, I'm not like, I'm not going hardcore on either end, you know. Uh, so maybe I had to like get with the marketing, you know, and kind of go one way or the other, quite frankly. But um, <coughs> it's just kind of interesting, I think, how, um, you know, the natural wine movement really made me question my use on sulfur. Now I use far less, probably a third of what I used to use, you know. Um, and it was a gradual decline. And it was really, instead of just taking uh, additions for granted, just like, well, this is common practice. Let's mm -hmm. do this. I really started testing the limits, being like, how low can I go? without losing the quality that I want to maintain, or not, not even quality, just without the wines um, changing, you know, mm -hmm. from producing the wine that I want to produce. Um, do I even need sulfur, you know? And I've come to the conclusion that yes, I need sulfur in my wines. I could use far less of it than, um, than most people use mm -hmm. though, you know, mm -hmm. so. And I feel the same with uh, acid additions, you know, people, you know, people are like, oh, well, you know, we gotta get this perfect pH, you know, and I've experimented with lots of wines. I'm like, well, you know, if it's a little ripe, it's a little ripe, you know, and the wines still come out great. You know, maybe they're not gonna age for 20 years, but you know, um, we need we need, we need need the wines that are accessible now, and we need the wines that are, you know, good to drink in 10, 20 years as well, you know? So what do you see as you look ahead for Oregon? You've talked about global warming quite a bit, yeah. about what's gonna happen with Pinot here in the Valley. What yep. else do you see as you look ahead at say a decade down the road in Oregon mm -hmm. wine's future? What's it gonna look like? What are you hoping for maybe? What are you fearing? Well, the, one of the good factors I think is the reemergence of Chardonnay. You know, I think um, we've often said that in the cooler years we make better Pinot, in the warmer years we make better white wines. Mm -hmm. 
so with these warmer years, quite frankly, I feel like you get a, lang a longer hang time on a lot of these white varieties. So we, um, we've been making probably better Chardonnay more recently uh, than Pinot. So, you know, maybe in the long run, we've got uh, a lot more Chardonnay in the forefront. Um, on the other hand, it's kind of interesting with Pinot Noir, because, you know, we're, we're starting to see higher elevation sites, which combat some of these uh, issues we're having at the lower elevation sites. And also, um, just style, well, it's a, I don't know, we'll kind of see how everything unfolds, <laughs> quite <laughs> frankly. But uh, global warming scares the hell out of me, quite frankly, you know? Uh, I'm like a big part of my business is uh, based on agriculture, you know? Um, and there's just, I've seen so many models. People like, oh, Willamette Valley could be like the East Coast, could be like hot and humid. And I'm like, oh God, you know, this sounds horrible, you know? Um, especially, you know, we have enough moisture in the valley, you know, uh, in terms of issues with spray programs, you know, and having to prevent mildew and stuff. And man, just the thought of that being worse than it is now is just, <laughs> you know, it makes you just wonder about what you're doing, you know, and like, or, or what's, uh, you know, it, it's always kind of interesting being in the middle of a, a changing times, I suppose, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, how do you, do you have the foresight to make the right decisions, you know, for your brand going forward? Mm -hmm. That's probably the biggest part, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm not so worried about me, you know, but, uh, you know, I worry about my kids, mm -hmm. you know? I want them, if, if either one of them would like my business, I would, I would love to give it to them, you know? So, uh, you know, how do we make this, how do we make everything good for the long term, you know, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of global warming, in terms of sustainability, in terms of good business practices? Mm -hmm. How do how does this all unfold, you know? Uh, it's not an easy answer. No, not at all. <laughs> so I assume this has probably happened to you since you've been around the industry long enough, but mm -hmm. someone came to you and said they wanted to get into the industry, or the wine industry. Mm -hmm. What would your words of wisdom to them be? I would say just, you know, work for other people, you know? Um, like I said, I, I really think what I do is a craft, you know, which is, uh, you know, it's part um, mechanics and it's part artistry, you know? And where that line is is very blurry and it differs from person to person, you know? Um, but I think the, the, the mechanics of everything and, and doing things, um, understanding what your decisions are going to have on your on your product, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think is key, and the only way you're going to get that is experience. You know, um, mm -hmm. that's kind of the way I thought about it. You know, I'm like, do I go back to school for winemaking? I'm like, no. I, you know, quite frankly, I'd rather do like a European style internship and just work for other people and just learn what they have to offer and mm -hmm. just not vintage hop. You know, but really dig in and work for somebody for a year or two. Um, and you, know, you, you learn all the ins and outs of how to run a bottling line, how to take apart a pump, you know, how to troubleshoot a forklift when it won't start. You know, all these things are, are needed you know, if you want to start your own business. You know, people are like, oh, well, that's not really winemaking. I'm like, well, you know, you know, unless you've just got lots of money, <laughs> you know? Um, somebody like me, I have to figure out how to do this all myself. You know? um, that's one of the things I think I'm kind of known for is the fact that I'm, I, uh, I, you know, I can fix virtually anything at this point, <laughs> you know? I, I, I keep my business running pretty much without paying any repair bills, you know? Uh, it's one of my good attributes. I'm not a chemist, but, you know, I, I consider myself more of a mechanic, you know? Love it. Yeah. Blue-collar winemaking. Yeah, pretty much, you know? <laughs> I try to reflect that in my price points, too, you know? I, I'm, my most expensive bottle is still cheaper than the Oregon average, you know? I think at about 40 bucks, you know? So, um, 
I try, I try to try to keep it accessible, you know, for everybody, and uh, still make a living for myself, you know. That's all the questions that I have for you today. Right. Uh, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have asked? Anything we didn't cover that we should have covered? No. No, I can't think of anything. That was fun. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for yeah. sharing time, sharing thank stories you. with us. We'll go and let you off the hook. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.